Well, good evening. And for those of you joining us online Sunday morning, good morning to you as well. We're so glad that you've come to worship with us today or tonight. And uh, we're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, our last week in this series. So if you have a Bible, turn with us. You will find the words, of course, on your screen as well. Let me just say, too, as you're turning there, if you maybe came in uh, a little bit late tonight, a few minutes late, you might have missed Mark sharing that tonight is communion. Uh, we're going to take communion together tonight. So you'll find those on the tables and the entryways. If you didn't pick one up, feel free to get up at any point tonight and grab one before we come to the communion table. And then if you're at home on Sunday morning, we'd love for you to prepare those elements uh, for yourself there at home so that you can participate with us in the Lord's table. So 1 Corinthians chapter 13, we've been in a series now over the course of the entire summer. We're going to start a new series on Sunday, or next week together in the book of Philippians, and we're going to work through that. But we are going to give now a summary, if you will, of our entire summer spent in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 tonight, which I hope will be helpful to you. And as I was preparing this, I got to thinking about when Amanda and I had been married about a year and a half. We went to the beach with her family and uh, we were, you know, having a great time at the beach. We're playing around and we decided to throw the ball in the ocean. This is like pre-kids. So when you go to the beach, you're not monitoring children to make sure no one's drowning, right? This is like the, the freedom of, of that moment. So we're just goofing around in the waves. We're throwing the ball back and forth. I throw her a ball that's a little off. And so she dives for it, makes an amazing catch, by the way comes up out of the water and kind of jammed her finger. And so she, she shook her finger. When she shook her finger, I jokingly, in my mind, said, hey, where are your rings? Wedding ring and engagement ring. She went white as a ghost. And I thought she had taken them off and left them in the hotel room. And so surely, surely, all was well. That's why I thought it was a joke. It was not a joke. She immediately hit the panic button and went, oh, no. And so then the next hour was spent fruitlessly searching in the waves. Have you ever dropped something in the ocean and then tried to find it? It's next to impossible, but when you love your wife, you try. And so we tried for a good hour uh, to look everywhere. We found some guy with a metal detector, said, by any chance, if you run across an engagement ring and a wedding ring, please, here's our phone number, call us. It was okay. You know, they were insured. We, we got it all taken care of. But it was one of those moments where you know, your heart just stops for a beat. And we'd only been married a year and a half. She felt terrible. And you know, what was happening in that moment is that the, the preciousness of something to us, because those rings have more than monetary value to us, right? They, they have the value of representing the covenant that we've made with one another, that we've made an everlasting covenant with each other. And we, we put those rings on one another's fingers as a demonstration of that covenant, that it's like the circle that encircles our fingers. Our covenant is to never end right? And we are to surround one another with love and protecting, with protecting love and with joy and with trust, right? And those are the words we said to one another as we put those rings on each other's fingers. So they go far beyond the monetary value of a ring. They speak to the preciousness of a covenant. And the preciousness of certain things like that covenant get highlighted. In this case, they got highlighted by the loss of those rings. Maybe we hadn't pondered the preciousness of them until they were lost to us. Out of curiosity, has anyone lost a wedding ring or an engagement ring at any point? Okay, a few folks. Yeah, absolutely. And it highlights the preciousness of that thing to you. Well, here's what Paul has been doing for us in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. He's been trying to highlight for us the preciousness of this thing called love. 
the, the, the preciousness of those rings and my covenant with my wife was highlighted by the loss of those rings. We don't have to lose anything here today to understand that what Paul has been doing for us all summer long has been highlighting for us how precious a gift love is. In particular, God's love for us, which then is meant to flow through us. And so 1 Corinthians 13 has been making the argument that love is not only a precious thing, but it's such a precious thing. It's such a valuable thing that it's meant to dictate and define all that we are. It's meant to be the marker of our very lives, to dictate the choices that we make and the way that we think and the way that we live and the relationships that we have. And so that's what we find as we look at this chapter. Now we've gone phrase by phrase through this entire chapter. And so here's what I'd like to do tonight. I I don't want to just reiterate all that we've heard before. What I'd like to do is kind of take the chapter in some total. And so some of what I share with you tonight will be by way of reminder of what we've already heard. But I want to remind you of a few things that stand out in this text or share with you a few things that stand out in this text as we look at the whole thing together about the preciousness of love and how it should dictate then the very choices that we make in our lives. Okay, fair enough? Awesome, fantastic. So let's read it together. Let's read the entire chapter of 1 Corinthians 13, 13 verses, beginning in verse one. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, then face to face. Now I know in part. Then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide. These three. But the greatest of these, church, is what? Is love. Is love. It's a precious text. Now, here's here's the things that we want to highlight tonight, okay? Number one, number one thing I want to highlight is in those first three verses, and it's this. I could spend my whole life serving Jesus and still waste it. That's an interesting concept, isn't it? You might even balk at it when you first hear me say it. I could spend, you could spend your whole life serving Jesus and you could waste it. We'll come back to that. That's the first point we wanna make. The second point we wanna make is this. For love to fill me up, humility must take hold of me. For love to fill me up, humility must take hold of me. Then we wanna talk about how is humility acquired, just very briefly. 
And then I just want to show you the love of Jesus in this text. That's our, that's our roadmap. That's what we want to do tonight. So let's return to that first point that we're saying, I could spend my whole life serving Jesus and waste. Now, look, I, I thought long and hard about how to craft that, that sentence. And here's why. Because it sounds false at first glance. When you say, I could serve Jesus with my entire life and still find that I wasted my life. At first glance, that feels false. But when I go back to verses one through three and look at them again, I find something very significant there about serving Jesus with our spiritual gifts. And yet, hearing these words, I could do this and I would still be a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. I could do this and I would still be nothing. I could do these things and I could still gain nothing. So my uh, wife and I have started watching the world's toughest race. Has anyone seen this? Oh my goodness, it's fantastic. The adventure racing. Uh, so it's this eco-challenge adventure race. If you're like into the outdoors, you'll love this. And I'm talking about an 11-day race over, over hundreds and hundreds of kilometers that involves rock climbing and rappelling and swimming in frigid waters and, and kayaking in the open ocean. I mean, you name it, they do it. Hikes in the mountains for 20 plus miles. It's fantastic. Do you know the part of this, if you've been watching it, if you've seen this show, it's absolutely amazing. The thing about this that above all other things that made me think I, I couldn't do it is because regularly a team will make a navigation error and they will be off course in the mountains, in the jungle for hours. They're still working every bit as hard as they ever worked before and yet their work is producing nothing because they're not on the course they're supposed to be on. They're not doing it the right way. And because they're not doing it the right way, all their effort, all their work, they're not working any less hard than any other team at that moment. But because they're not on the course that the race is on, they're not actually making any progress. I thought about that when I thought about these verses, because I think it's similar to what we learn here, that Paul is saying, look, all these great gifts, tongues and prophecy and faith and knowledge and I mean, faith to move a mountain, knowledge just steeped in, in fullness of knowledge, right? This deep wisdom perhaps that you might possess or these ecstatic experiences of worship where God would move through you in such a way that you might speak a prophetic word that's not from you, but from him to have that giftedness. That, that's heady stuff and it's powerful stuff and it's useful stuff. Again, nowhere in this text is Paul trying to diminish spiritual gifts. He just wants us to understand that those gifts utilized without love, pouring out of our hearts in their use, doesn't accomplish anything. And I think it's very telling that Paul took the time to tell us that if you do all these things, he made a point to say you, you gain nothing. So here's the three things I see in those first three verses is that if I use whatever gifts God might have given me, if I use them, but not in a way that my heart is overflowing with love, when he says that I would be, be like a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal, which we understand in, in that context is, a, is a, a, an instrument of foreign or pagan worship, right? It's, it's not worship of God, it's worship of something else that would be a, a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. So I understand him to say, without love filling up your service to God, without love doing that, you are not glorifying him. There's no glorifying effect towards God in your service. It's not full of love. What about when he says 
if I were to do these things, I, and he, he concludes, I am nothing. When he says those words, when he says, I am nothing, well, I understand him to mean there that, that the, the works themselves have no sanctifying effect in me. They don't further shape me into the image of God, no matter how great the service. Not, that service, not full of love, does not have the sanctifying effect that God intends it to have. And then finally, when he says, I could do all these things and utilize my, my gifts that God has given me in all these different ways, he says, but I, I gain nothing. Well, I take him to mean that the two gains that any of us should be looking for when we are using the gifts God has given us, the two gains are that we would build his kingdom here on earth, that we would see his kingdom more fully established and also that there would be an eternal, war, an, an eternal reward gained for us. You know you should be aiming for an eternal reward, yes? He said that he wants to give it to you so you should try and get it. You should aim for it with your life and your actions and don't be shy about it. Tell him you want it and go and get it and use the gifts he's given you to get it. So when he says, I, I gain nothing, what I take that to mean is I gain no impact for his kingdom here and now, and I gain no eternal reward for myself in the end. Service devoid of love is a waste. That's what I take from these first three verses. And I, I need you to hear that, church. I need you to hear it because we're, we're examining this text so that we might call ourselves to see the preciousness of love and then fill up our hearts and our lives and our minds with it and revive ourselves in that love and not just do our diligent duty, but to fill ourselves up with the love of Christ. So that, that's the first thing that we see as we look at this text. Now, in verses four through seven, we took that phrase by phrase and looked at all these demonstrations of what, what love looks like. It's patient, it's kind, it doesn't envy, it doesn't boast. I'm not gonna reiterate all those things, but here's what I want you to see. They all have something in common. So when we go on a road trip, my family, we play a game. One of these things is not like the others. Has anyone played that game? Uh, if you've never played this game, here's what you do. You get in the car and you know, you're trying to kill the hours as you're driving. And so one person at a time takes turns giving a list of three or four or five items. We usually do four and we'll name the four items and you have to identify which of those things doesn't belong in the list. And sometimes you, know, you can identify that this thing, you could find, well, these three things relate this way, but this one doesn't relate. But if I look at it through a different lens, it's kind of fun, right? And so our kids will take turns saying, well, I think that this one's the outlier, right? So like as an example, I might've said, I might say, okay, my list is the Cowboys, the Eagles, the Giants, and the Lakers, right? And one of my kids might say, well, the Lakers are a basketball team. The other three are football teams. And you say, yep, yeah, yeah, you're right. The Lakers is the one thing that's not like the other. They could also say the Cowboys is not like the other because the other three teams all stink and no one should root for them. I had to, come on. Not really. All right, so one of these things is not like the others, right? Now, here's the thing. The game requires you to be able to tell what three things have in common, right? And the same thing is true here in these, in these verses, uh, verse four, five, six, and seven. As Paul is giving us a demonstration of what love is like, there is a common denominator. And I wonder if you noticed it as we went through week by week. We didn't necessarily highlight it for you. We saved it till now. But there's one common denominator, and the common denominator is that underneath each of these attributes of love is humility. Humility is the thing that, that causes these attributes to be brought forward. It is the very foundation of these aspects, these attributes of love. Or we might say it this way, they depend on 
and they rise from humility. Every, and I'm not gonna go through every one, but let me go through a few and show you what I mean. Every one of these depends on and rises from humility. So when we hear that love is patient, do you recognize that I cannot be patient until I have the humility to believe others don't need to cater to me and operate on my timeline? I can't be patient until I have the humility to believe that others, their, their duty is not to cater to me nor to operate on my timeline. Or how about when he says, love is kind? Well, here's the thing. I can be kind to people, right, who do good to me and who are kind to me without humility. But if I wanna be kind to people who aren't kind to me, what does that require? It requires humility. If I'm gonna be truly kind, the kind of kind like where my love is kindness towards my enemy, towards the person who seeks to harm me. But what about envy? And boasting, we're told that love doesn't envy and it doesn't boast. It is patient and it is kind, but it doesn't envy and it doesn't boast. Well, that when you hear boasting, you probably recognize that's the, that's the exact opposite of humility, right? But think about it this way. We said when we looked at envy and boasting that envy is what we experience when we want something that God gives to someone else. He gives them that gift, that blessing, and we, we, we want that thing. And so we feel envy because we feel like we should have it. And boasting is what we do when we get the thing that someone else doesn't get and we think, what? I deserved that, right? So envy and boasting, I can't put those away as long as I think I deserve good things more than someone else does, more than others. I will envy when they get them and I will boast when I get them. Or how about this one? This one is challenging, right? Love does not insist on its own way. Love does not insist on its own way. And, and Russ uh, preached to us about this several weeks ago. And I love when he essentially demonstrated for us, this is like a fixation. When it says love doesn't insist on its own way, that idea is that, that we become fixated on having things our way. In other words, we can't be okay if it doesn't go our way. And I will never give up getting my way. I will never give up getting my way if I don't have the humility to see how another person's way is just as good, if not better than my way. I mean, do you, do you ever recognize sometimes that you might get stuck in thinking that your way is the only way? And that's why you insist upon it because you think, well, it's superior to the other ways. Well, it takes humility to see that someone else's way might actually be better or, or just as good and perhaps a good viable option. What about resentful. Love, love doesn't resent. And we heard there when we looked at that, that another way of translating that was that love keeps no record of wrongs. And I think that's a good illustrative way to put this word. Love doesn't sort of keep a tally of the wrongs done against it. And think about humility's place there. I will take up offenses and I will hold on to them until I have the humility to know I am not owed only right treatment, that I don't assume everyone owes me right treatment, and also to see that any offense done against me is no worse than an offense I've done against someone else. And it takes humility to recognize that, right? And so it's not until I take up humility that I can take up that attribute of love. And then last one I'll highlight here, love does not rejoice with wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. I will not have the strength to call someone I love to submit to the truth or to call to not celebrate wrongdoing, but to celebrate truth in their life and perhaps to say wrongdoing is wrongdoing 
when I love someone, I will not have the strength to actually love them the way I should love them, to call out wrongdoing as wrongdoing and to highlight truth as truth and to call them to the truth. I won't have, I will not have the strength to do that and risk offending them without humility, without humility entering in where I recognize it's okay if they are offended by this because I'm not representing my own understanding of truth. Someone else is, you could probably resonate with that. Well, I hope you resonate with that. I mean, think about friendships you've had. Think about perhaps with your spouse. I've seen time and time again, I see it a lot with parents and children, actually. I see parents unwilling to highlight something their child is doing is not right for risk of losing relationship with their child. And friends, I just wanna say, humility has to enter into that so that you can speak the truth because you don't love until you rejoice with the truth and not rejoice with wrongdoing. So that's just a few examples of how humility then is at the core of this. So then let's ask the question. I'm gonna take us to another text for just a brief moment before we return to just thinking about the marvelous, perfect love of Jesus and how it's highlighted in this text. Let's take a moment to think about how do we gain humility, all right? So we've said our, our service has to be filled up with love, otherwise we're wasting, wasting our lives, no matter how powerful our service might seem to be. And then we've said, well, the core underneath all of these attributes of love is humility itself. So it makes sense that we'd wanna understand then how do we grow and gain in humility? And there's more than just a few answers to this, but I'm gonna reflect upon one text for you. And it's 1 Peter chapter 5, verses one through seven. Let me read it to you. And then I just wanna make a couple of observations from it for us. So here's what 1 Peter chapter 5, verses one through seven say. say. Peter writing says, so I exhort the elders among you. So he's talking to the leaders of the church. I exhort you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Okay, so now up to this point, he's been talking to the leaders of the church. Now look what he does in verse five. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you. So now he's he's spoken to the leaders, the older, he's spoken to the younger, and now he says, all of you. In other words, let me encapsulate what I've just said for you, for everyone, the older, the younger, the leaders, the, the followers. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. So friends, let me just make a few very short observations in that text about how we grow in humility. I need to mark my place here so I can go back to 1 Corinthians 13. So a couple of observations. Number one, notice that he's speaking to those who are called to lead and those who are called to follow. In in other words, all of us. So this applies to all of us. And we saw a couple things here in verse six. Here's one way we grow in humility. That when, see that when you defer to someone else's needs or desires, when you humbly say, hey, not my way, but your way. 
that's a type of like almost bowing before them, if you will, not in worship, but just sort of a graciousness of I'll bow out of the way and let you have your way. When you do that, recognize that who you're actually bowing to is God himself, that you are bowing to God himself. You're, you're deferring to him. This is what he says in verse six, humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God. We'll relate that back to what he just said before that in verse five, when he says, humble yourselves towards one another. And then the very next phrase is, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. So what he wants us to understand is when we're humble towards one another, deferring to one another, we are actually bowing under the mighty hand of God, acknowledging his power, his control, that we trust him. We're humbling ourselves before him. That's an important thing for me because if I just have to bow before other people who are imperfect, then I'm not that prone to do it. But if I understand that humility, when I take a humbleness towards you or you towards me, that what we're actually doing is we're bowing before God himself when we display that humility. Church, are you with me? Does that make sense? So that's number one is understanding we're, we're bowing before the, the king, not just before one another. Then see this. After he says, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, look what he says next. So that at the proper time, he may exalt you. At the proper time, he may exalt you. In other words, he's saying, choose humility now and exaltation will come later. But if you choose exaltation now to exalt your way, that you must have it your way, insisting on your own way or choosing to to make yourself lifted up or puffed up. If you choose that now, you'll be lowered later. If you wanna be exalted later, choose humility now. So in other words, we might see it this way, is rather than choose the, rather than, Uh, choose a snack, if you will, of glory. Choose a feast of glory later. You can have a snack of it now, or you can have a feast of it later, right? How many of you have tried to convince kids at some point in life, you should not want the snack now, wait for the feast that's coming later. It's gonna be so much better, right? We're gonna have filet mignon later. I don't know how many kids like filet mignon, but it's good, right? Don't mess with the bagel bites now, okay? Like the good stuff is coming. Wait for it. Humble yourselves now, exaltation later. Then again, we're just noting these quickly. In verse seven then, note this. And this is challenging, friends. Can I just say this? This is so challenging because we're not prone to think of fear as related to pride, but that's exactly what he does here. He relates fear and anxiety to pride. After saying, humble yourself before God, so that he may exalt you at the proper time. Then he says, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Now, sometimes we think about that verse all by itself, that verse seven there, cast your anxieties on Jesus, he cares for you. That's an awesome verse. But recognize that the context is telling us that he's saying, when you choose to hold on to your anxieties, that's a form of pride. It's a form of not humbling yourself before the Lord. He's saying, throw your anxieties at the feet of Jesus so that you will not take them up again. That's what that casting your anxieties means. That word for casting literally means to to throw it down with conviction that you will not pick it up again. And he's saying, do that as an expression of humility. That when you cast your anxieties, your fears before the Lord, you are choosing to do something that is humble. And to fail to do that then would be the opposite of humility. It would be a subtle form of pride. Now he's gracious enough to make us aware of that because it's something that we miss. So we have to cast our 
fears at the feet of Jesus in order to grow in humility. And then the last one, which is gonna bridge us over to our final point and back to 1 Corinthians chapter 13 is this. Cast your anxieties on him because he what, church? He cares. He cares for you. We might say he loves you, right? So he's not just condemning you for the proud act of holding on to your fears and not putting them at his feet. He's not, he's not harshly saying that to you or to I. He's inviting you to cast them with such gentleness and graciousness. And he's giving you the reason why you can trust that you can do it. Because he loves you. Because he loves you, you can cast your anxieties. So the last way to grow in humility is to believe that he means it when he says he loves you. That when Jesus says, you are loved by God through me, that that's a, that's a reality that can never change. It's set in stone. Now, we've looked through the course of, I think it's been 10 weeks now, maybe 11, at every phrase in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. We've looked at every single one of them. And as we've looked at them, we've treated them as what they are, which is they're verbs, which means they're action words, and they're an expectation that we would live these out. So when it says love is patient, it's expecting that you and I would be what, church? Patient. When it says love is kind, it's expecting that you and I would be what, church? Kind, right? Exactly. Every one of those we've taken, we've examined it from the standpoint of saying, how do I grow in this? How do I do this? It's expected of me. It's a command here in the scriptures. I wanna follow it. But what we haven't done is stop to see one very important thing. And we wanted to end our time in this whole chapter and all these weeks on this, that every one of these phrases is not only a command, it is a description of the perfect love of God in Jesus Christ. Every single one of them. The perfect Patient love is found in Christ Jesus. The perfect love expressed in kindness is found in Christ Jesus. Every single attribute of love found here is found perfectly in him and is expressed through his cross. Can I just point out three ways that Jesus perfectly shows you these things? Let's close with this, okay? Here's what we find back in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. So if you went over to 1 Peter and you wanna go back, now's the time to go back. Let me just show you the beauty of this. Love is kind. Well, how has Jesus showed us kindness or love expressed as kindness? We did look at this in Ephesians chapter two, verses four through seven. In kind love, Jesus has seated us with him in the heavenly realms, in the heavenly places, which is to say he has chosen to share his authority, his power with us. Here's what Ephesians two, four to seven says. But God being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. In other words, what he's saying is, what does kind love look like when Jesus expresses it? Well, when he expresses it, it looks like him raising us from the dead, raising us then up into a new identity with him and then seating us with him in the heavenly places. The love of Christ, which is so profoundly perfect for you and for I, has poured an authority into our lives, a, a deep authority 
that enables us to identify truth and to walk in it and to put away sin and to not continuing to march in old ways, but to take up new ways. Friends, you need to walk in the authority that is yours because Christ loves you and his perfect love pours authority into your life. You are seated with him in the heavenly places. That's a bright reality now, not just in the future. Second one I want to point out is, is when we see our text tells us that love does not envy. Think about how Christ has shown us this kind of perfect love. Rather than envy that God should give us any good gift, Christ does not sit up in the heavenly places at the right hand of the Father and say, I really don't want you to give that to them. I'd rather you not. I'd rather, I'd rather you continue to point that towards me, Father. Rather than envy that God should pour any good gift out upon us, rather than that, Christ himself has become the avenue by which God will withhold no good gift from us. Think about this. This is Psalm 84, verse 11. This is the Lord speaking, and he says, For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. And then he says this, No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. No good thing. Church, do you see the breadth of that promise? No good thing does he withhold from him who walks, from those who walk uprightly. And then we might ask, well, what, what part does Christ play? Now just go into the New Testament. Romans chapter eight, verse 32. Maybe of all the promises in scripture, you've heard me say this before, maybe the richest one. Romans eight thirty-two. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things. In other words, what he's just said is that promise that he withholds no good thing from those who walk uprightly. He said, I fulfilled that to you in Christ. I haven't withheld my son from you. He is the great good and I've given him to you. And by the way, if I've given him to you, there's nothing else that I will withhold from you that I deem to be for your good. I will not withhold it. I will give it. And far from envying that we should receive such great gifts and great blessings, rather than envy, what does Jesus do? He becomes the very way in which we receive them. He becomes the very pathway upon which the good gifts of God come to us. First, he is the gift. And secondly, then all the treasures and gifts that God continues to pour out upon us, he pours out through Christ and in Christ. Do you know it? You receive daily mercy and daily grace and daily breath and daily good gifts and relationships within the church and the ability to see and to hear the work of God in the world. Why? Because Christ deems it to be so because he upholds the universe and he pours out his blessings upon you and is the conduit through which God does that. Every good you and I have, we have in Christ. The last thing we see here is that in love, we hear that love keeps no record of wrongs. And Christ's perfect love, in his perfect love, Jesus silences the accusations of the evil one rather than keep an ongoing list of all of our wrongs. Do you know that? Listen to Revelation chapter 12, verses 10 and 11. This is John writing and he says, and I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come for the accuser, that's Satan, of our brothers has been thrown down 
who accuses them day and night before our God. Do you see what this text is telling us? It's, it's, it's giving us a peek into the future as to what is happening now. We're told that the accuser accuses us day and night. That's not just something that's gonna happen in the future, it's happening now. And that Christ is the one because of his blood shed for us who is able to silence him. You can't silence him, do you know that? You have no ability to silence the accusations against you because he doesn't need to lie. He doesn't need to make stuff up. He only needs to speak what is true about what you and I have done in our lack of faithfulness, yes? All he needs to speak. Now, he may lie because he's the father of lies. That's what he enjoys doing. So I don't know whether he lies or just tells what I'm actually doing. Either way, those accusations, I have no power to stand up against them except for the fact that Jesus has died, paid the penalty, and then been raised from the dead. And my only hope against those accusations is that Christ himself would silence them in his power and in his love. And that's exactly what the scriptures tell us he is doing right now for all who are in him. Every accusation being silenced by his authority, his power, because of his love for you and for I. Here's why it's so important that we would see this, friends, that we would end this whole series on this note. I said several weeks ago, and I think I probably said it the first week, you and I by this text are commanded to love. We're told that our very lives will be a waste. No matter how great our service, it will be a waste if we are not filled with love. And then we're told what that love looks like. But friends, don't you know that the way to begin to love that way is to see how greatly you have been loved. To see how greatly you have been loved. To be humbled by the perfect love of Christ shown for you, shown for me. And when we see it then, here's what we know. The love with which we are commanded to love is ours in Christ Jesus. It has been given to us and now resides in us and may be poured out of us. It's his love, not ours, that we need. And it has been given to us. And now it's ours with which to love one another. Yes, church? We are to love one another, not in our own will and strength, but in the power of the love of Christ, which is ours. His perfect, patient love. His love full of kindness. His love which does not boast or envy. His love which is not irritable, which keeps no record of wrong. Does not, does not delight in wrongdoing or rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. So as we come now, friends, to the end of our series, it's fitting that we get to take communion tonight together. We come to the table of love together. So having examined love and thought about the perfect love of Jesus, we come now to think about and meditate upon his perfect demonstration of love, his very cross. And so friends at home, we'll invite you to come to the elements. Now, let me say two quick words about what we're doing here in case you're joining us maybe online or here tonight in the sanctuary, maybe joining us for the first time. And as we partake of these elements, I want you to know what we're doing. We are displaying and declaring the work of Jesus on the cross, that he has died, sacrificed his body and his blood so that we might have our sins forgiven now, here's a piece of instruction I'd give to you. If you have not placed your faith in Jesus, I'd encourage you to not join us in communion today or this evening. And here's why. Because when we partake of these elements, we are proclaiming that we've placed our faith 
in what these elements represent, in Jesus, his cross, his work. And we wouldn't want you to proclaim with your actions something you haven't yet believed with your mind and with your heart. So we'll encourage you to let this be a time where you reflect upon the love that you've heard about tonight. Use this time to reflect. It's a love that pursues and comes for us. And we know that Christ's love is directed towards you. And we, we would invite you, we would invite you to hear and to see and to, to allow us to bear witness to his love, which we have come to know. And we'd invite you to experience and to know as well. Church family, we know we're told not to partake of these elements lightly. And so it will benefit us to take now a moment to reflect. Jim's gonna play the organ for us and we're just gonna give you a moment to reflect. We don't have to pass any plates with the elements tonight. So you have them in your hands. Uh, we will take the bread first and the cup second in just a few moments. But I wanna give you a moment or two to reflect upon where the Spirit of God might be convicting you, encouraging you, calling you to lay down old patterns and take up new ones so that we might say to him in genuineness, we have trusted in you and we wanna walk forward with you. Forgiveness of sins has come at a great cost and we hold a representation of that cost in our hands this evening. So let's reflect upon that cross tonight together, even as we hear the organ play for us hymns of praise and then we'll come together all at once and take the elements.